Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As you know, this show is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, the place where independent, intelligent podcast listeners gather to have their minds pampered. A metaphorical day spa of intellectual wonders, over a million listeners flock each month to Agora, where they get to enjoy the steam room of debate, the cool pool of literature, and the Russian birch branch massage of popular science. Afterwards, as our listeners indulge in a facial mask of historic discussion, you may find that they are pleasantly lulled into a mood where their minds are open to new information. It is in just such a state that advertising might prove effective. So if you have a product or service that might appeal to our discerning and intelligent but mildly dulled listeners, email us at agorapodcastnetwork at gmail.com and discover the difference Agora can make. Now, despite the very short time between this episode and the last, we actually have a number of donors and patrons to thank. Donor Tyler is the first up, and due to his service to the kingdom, he'll be known from henceforward as Tyler, the mostly immortal knight. Patron Matthew Medium Stockings has upped his donation, and shall therefore be known as Matthew Medium Stockings, the Arctic Fox of the South. Uh, and apologies to Matthew for how long that took. And lastly, we have a man of few words, Julian, who shall be known as Jarl Julian, Cattywampus. Thank you to all donors and patrons for your invaluable services to the kingdom. It really does mean a lot, and every little bit helps. And thank you all out there for listening. If you're not capable of making a financial donation to the show at this time, please consider telling people about it, or going to iTunes and leaving a nice review. I would also encourage you to, once again, go to the store and check out some of the swag we have there. It is swaggy. And there will be new stuff going up there at some point. So uh, please uh, do check back on it every now and again. I would also like to say that for the $10 patrons and the equivalent level for donors, uh, I am going to be attempting to institute a new system that is related to the store for you guys. Now, uh, way back two years ago, I think, when I started on Patreon, I had decided that, you know, the, the $10 level people would be getting something extra above what the everyone else got, and I hadn't figured it out. I've gone through about four different ideas, but I, I feel like I am happy to say at this point, that the $10 level patrons and above will be getting a discount at the store. I haven't decided on the amount yet, but I believe it's going to be something along the lines of a 10% discount, which, uh, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, will mean that you'll be getting the items at cost. Uh, for the rest of the donors and patrons, also, I know I've been saying this, but my wife and I are actually going to be sitting down this weekend and writing out envelopes to send to you guys with the swag that I've been promising for... 
two years, I guess. So, again, super sorry it took this long. I'm not good at this stuff. The only reason the store thing is working at all is because someone else is doing the fulfillment. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening again, and let's get to it. Quote read by Susan Stevenson of the wonderful American Epistles podcast. Seriously, go check this one out. Translated Letter To the Holy Lady, Honorable by God, Abbess Adolana, a servant of the ecclesiastical family, Elfled sends greetings of eternal safety in the Lord. Since we know your fame for holiness from those coming from your region, relating the well-known reports, I confess that love for you seized me in the depths of my being, according to the Lord's command. This is my command, that you love one another. John fifteen twelve. That is why we ask as suppliant that you deign to defend us with the Almighty Lord by your sacred and flaming oracles. Indeed, our humility will annoy you less in this exchange, since the Apostle James orders and says, Pray for each other, that you may be saved. James 5.16 Moreover, we commend to your highest holiness and customary piety, strenuously with all diligence, and the devoted handmaid of God and pious abbess, our dearest and most faithful daughter from the years of her youth, for love of Christ and the honor of the apostles Peter and Paul, desiring to go to their holy threshold, but held back by us until now, for the needs and service of the souls committed to her. And we pray that she be received by you with the affection of true charity in the bosom of pious mercy with those who accompany her, so that she can finally carry out the journey so long desired and often begun, with God helping and your piety assisting. For which we ask, repeating again and again, that she be directed to the maternal city of Rome on a favorable course with your catalogs, and the favor of the holy sign-bearer, Peter, Prince of Apostles. And if she gets to you, with God wishing, she finds you prepared with whatever she should ask in person, stimulated by the occasion for the needs of her journey. May divine grace deign to protect your holiness praying for us. Historical Context Elfled declares her love for Adelana based on her reputation for holiness prays for her intervention with God by her prophetic powers, and asks her to receive another abbess who is about to make a pilgrimage to Rome, and supply her and her companions with travel information. The letter suggests a network of abbesses in touch by letter and visit from England to Rome. The quote is from a letter from Elfled, abbess of Whitby, as made available online as part of Epistolae, a database of medieval women's letters Hosted by Columbia University. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 51, The Economy Part 2, European Microeconomy. 
Last time out, we examined what previous generations of historians thought about the late Roman and medieval economy. I then started the process of discussing how modern views differ from those older ones by laying out the modern view of the Roman economy, the way government-subsidized shipping had come to dominate, and how the collapse of the empire left merchant shipping largely in the hands of coastal trampers. These sailors, who moved back and forth along well-worn local trade routes, would pull their smaller ships out onto beaches every night and sleep and trade. There is a bit more to say about maritime trade, but that's going to be next time. Today, we will discuss the microeconomic conditions of the medieval manor and how it interacted with the macroeconomy during the nadir of Europe's economic fortunes. And then next time out, we will bring it all together and discuss the revival of the European economy. We've discussed the manor many times on this show, but I think a quick review is in order under the circumstances. The medieval manor was a unit of land ownership that described all the contiguous lands owned by a single lord. The manor consisted of all the land and people in the area because the peasants who worked the land were generally tied by the land by legal restrictions, culture, or economic burdens. The manor consisted of all the land and people in the area because the peasants who worked the land were generally tied to the land by legal restrictions, culture, or economic burdens. The peasants on the manor owned rights to portions of the land as well, but worked the land communally in a crop rotation system called the three-field system. Because the peasants and the lord both owned the land in certain ways, you will sometimes find this described as the bipartite manor system. In any case, the peasants kept some of the goods that they produced, which were mostly agricultural, and some portion was given to the lord as rent or taxes. They also paid fees for using the mill and other land improvements, and some of the peasants had to do direct labor service for the lord as well. This is obviously an extreme summary, and for a better description, I encourage you to listen to episodes 44 to 46. In those episodes, and the earlier episodes on the nobility, I tried to avoid discussing how the manners interacted with the wider economy. I did this for two reasons. First, I knew I was going to be doing this episode at some point. Second, the historiography on the subject was confusing. The traditional view of the manor was that presented by Marc Bloch and Henri Piren, in which the manor grew up out of the collapse of the Roman Empire, with the status of the slaves improving and the rural poor decreasing so that they grew together as labor became restricted and the trading system imploded. The nobility retained their status as leaders of the community and lived off the agricultural surpluses produced by the peasantry. They used this wealth to feed and pay private armies which they used to try and acquire more lands while protecting what they had, but this internecine warfare furthered the collapse of trade. The manors became island economies, with everything needed produced locally. Life became harder and simpler, but because the lords had nothing to spend their money on, it restricted the amount they could demand in rent. After all, why annoy everybody, amassing huge surpluses of agricultural products that would just go bad? The downsides of this system were, according to the Whiggish historians, that neither the lord nor the peasants had any incentive to innovate or invest in the land or the manor, and so everyone stayed mired in poverty, with the lord dominating the peasants who were lazy and always on the edge of starvation. Some points of this picture, in my opinion, remain valid, but there was always a problem nagging at the back of my mind. These manors were mostly very small. Nowhere on earth has access to all the material goods needed to sustain even a medieval level of uh, subsistence lifestyle. Like you can have the most productive patch of farmland ever and still not have access to salt or iron. 
So even if we agree with the minimalists that a major economic catastrophe had occurred, and people stopped traveling super far, and economic horizons shrank, the idea of a village or even a handful of villages surviving for more than a few years without any kind of economic interaction with the outside world always struck me as highly unlikely. And, given that the manor is basically a huge machine constructed to funnel wealth into the hands of the Lord, why go to all the trouble of constructing such a system only to decide that you don't need that much to begin with? I was not the first person to notice this issue, and the critiques are hardly new. To summarize about 90 years of scholarship, earlier efforts to say that the medieval manor evolved out of the Roman villa have been uh, heavily undermined. There does not seem to be any evidence of villas undergoing any kind of intermediate evolution into a medieval village or manor house. Instead, the villas were just there until they weren't. Meanwhile, digs in Germany suggest that the first recognizable medieval villages appeared there, along the Rhine frontier, and notably on the non-Roman side of the river, where there were no villas. This is an extremely interesting development, because the people in those areas would have had access to Roman technology, but would have been outside the Roman legal system or social structure. Historians are now theorizing that a group of people on this frontier got their hands on Roman technology, like the watermill and the heavy plow. These were capital-intensive technologies that required Roman engineering to develop, but the Romans had not widely implemented them because of the calcification of the Roman slave plantation system. No individual peasant could afford a heavy plow or a watermill, but by pooling their resources, a whole community of peasants could, it turned out. This encouraged the peasants to adopt a centralized communal lifestyle, as opposed to the semi-nomadic one that had existed in the Rhine frontier area previously. When combined with Roman agricultural techniques like crop rotation, it seems likely that these communities had a newfound ability to get much greater crop yields by acting together as a commune than they had before by living in a dispersed fashion. It also seems likely, though we have no direct evidence, that such villages also produced higher crop yields than Roman villas. These developments stayed localized to this part of Central Europe until the Merovingian Franks took over the area. The process that followed is unclear, but I'm going to wildly speculate that a group of soldiers from this area hired on as part of the Frankish army and ended up settling down in a newly conquered, Romanized part of Francia. However it happened, the new social organization system slowly caught on in Roman Francia until one of the religious orders learned about this new system. Early Frankish monasteries definitely used something like this system, initially with the goal of having their monks entirely be self-sufficient, but this idea seems to have been abandoned relatively quickly in the face of other demands on their time, like praying and preaching. To keep the monastic community going economically, it seems likely to me that the monks gradually brought in peasants to work under the new open-field village system as tenants, but under a Roman legal context that had the peasants paying rents to the monastery. I like to think that the monks were able to do this through a mixture of persuasion and economic incentives. The peasants got land, capital, new agricultural techniques, and spiritual well-being. The monks, of course, could go back to doing monk stuff instead of farming. Whatever the process initially, our evidence is clear that the monasteries around the Frankish kingdom were the early adopters of this system, and the Frankish nobility followed in their wake afterwards. To me, it seems likely that the Frankish nobles initially saw value in the system when some of them were employed as administrators by the monasteries. This was certainly going to be the case later in the Middle Ages, and it's in line with some other monastic practices used to manage their economic situation. Once the Frankish nobility were brought in and saw the advantages of this system, they were not precious about copying it in their own properties. 
However, the monks brought the villagers into the manor, the nobility used force, plain and simple, and that's how most villagers ended up in villages on manors. This narrative undermines the idea that the medieval village was an example of communitarian stasis. In fact, the current evidence shows that the Frankish nobility invested heavily into their manners. Contrary to previous interpretations that medieval manners never benefited from investment or innovation, current archaeological digs show that every early medieval manor which was in any way suitable for having a water mill had one by the year 800, which means that the Frankish nobility were investing pretty quickly and pretty heavily. Given the caveat that we are speaking relative to medieval standards of education and communication, this suggests that advances in medieval agricultural technology were being implemented, in general, quickly. In this, the monasteries continued to play a key role in the innovation and dissemination of new agricultural practices throughout the Middle Ages. At the same time, and despite the force that was undoubtedly used against them, the peasants had a stake in this thing from the beginning as well. While the manorial system of taxation was probably imposed on the majority of villages by force, there's ample evidence that the peasants were getting something out of the situation, and had the ability to leave or impose changes if things were outside of what was considered at least minimally acceptable. Like, the peasants may not have liked paying taxes, no one does, but if things got past a certain level, they could all just take off. Whatever happened later, the manor was an economic unit that provided real benefits for the villagers, which is why the first villages self-organized in the first place, and why the villagers stayed on them mostly willingly. This is not to say that there was no conflict between the lords and the peasants. To the contrary, conflict was constant. But it was also clear that the power dynamic was not entirely one-sided. It was in the lords' best interests to ensure that the manors were economically successful, and the peasants were an important part of making the entire project work. Which gets us to a very key question about the manors for today. There is a wide array of written narrative evidence suggesting that the goal of the manor was to allow the lord to be entirely economically self-sufficient, and that travel was viewed as difficult and dangerous. With Roman infrastructure decaying, the countryside full of bandits, the sea full of pirates, and with new political boundaries springing up left and right, keep an eye on this space, clearly the goal of the manor was to let the lord cut themselves off from the chaos of the outside world, right? Why else would all the peasants be required to participate in cereal production, even in areas where there were more valuable things that they could be growing, or doing? There were even workshops on each estate to allow the production of consumer goods. So, mentions in the records of workshops set up to produce consumer goods on site seem to have been monastic experiments that quickly fell apart. Cereal production was seen as a cash crop in the Roman world, and having a diversity of crops protected the manor from crop failures. While the lands and seas definitely were lawless, that doesn't mean that no one was trading. After all, what is a pirate with no ships to attack? Starving. Yar. The Roman infrastructure was decaying, but most traders had already switched over to the use of pack animals instead of carts, which made the quality of roads less of a concern. So with that all out of the way, we have plenty of evidence that some kind of goods exchange was happening. Archaeologically, we see the resumption of small-scale iron and pottery production, more about pottery in a few minutes, we see the resumption of small-scale iron production all over Europe, production which quickly outpaced purely local needs. The same is true of pottery. In the written records, the laws of most manors contained labor requirements for unfree peasants to act as teamsters for the shipping of the lord's goods. We know about this because the requirement was hated by the peasants. So, given that there's a law that the people involved actively hated, but which it kept being imposed upon them, clearly that law wouldn't be on the books if the lord wasn't moving goods. If the village had been self-sufficient, this requirement would have been superfluous. 
Finally, everyone from the monastic communities to the Merovingian kings of France are recorded as having personal merchants on retainer to manage their business affairs. This would be a pretty sweet do-nothing gig if everyone was living in island economies. Self-sufficiency was a stated cultural ideal for noble families and monastic communities. This is really not in dispute, but it took a very different form from what has been assumed. Rather than trying to reduce everything in one manor, and then just owning a bunch of manors, and that idea is basically impossible, the lords would try to acquire multiple manors so that the goods from one area could make up for the lack of goods in another area. So if manor A lacked iron, and manor B lacked salt, the lord could force the peasants to ship iron and salt between the two holdings. In this way, a lord with a lot of scattered holdings could be largely self-sufficient. The most direct written evidence for this is in the law codes of Charlemagne. These codes explicitly exempt from tolls any goods being moved between manors owned by the same person. So, if a lord was moving iron from village B to A, he didn't have to pay a toll if he owned them both, but if he sold iron from village B which he owned to village C which he did not, then he would have to pay a toll. But the justification for this somewhat odd law is very interesting. The Carolingians viewed the movement of goods from manor to manor to be a matter internal to the noble household, and it was not the place of the state to interfere in such matters. Commerce, however, was a public transaction, and therefore subject to the law. In this, we can see the ideal of the noble household as a key unit of society, and within that household, the ideal of self-sufficiency for the family. The consensus amongst historians seemed to agree that the nobility viewed self-sufficiency amongst their holdings as the goal, and the largest landowners may have achieved these ends by, as we said, shipping goods between their various manors. So this might seem like points for the island economy idea, except that the different manors we're talking about here could be separated by hundreds of miles. At that point, the idea of an enclosed island economy has morphed into a nearly unrecognizable form. We're not talking about isolated communities, huddling away from the enclosing woods but about overlapping networks of interconnected producers. The villages may not have been selling the goods to each other, but to say that they were not economically linked is to take an extremely narrow view of what an economy even is. One useful metaphor is a vertically integrated corporation. Like how Ford Motor Company bought up iron foundries, rubber producers, and glass manufacturing plants. In this same way, the lords of Europe sought to reduce their expenses by taking over the production of goods that their different manners needed. None of this means that the Ford Motor Company, or the medieval lords, were entirely cut off from the wider economic world. To the contrary, the whole point, for Ford anyway, was to reduce costs and improve profits. And remember, only the biggest noble households could achieve this kind of self-sufficiency. So ultimately it seems likely to me, and many historians now agree, that manors had to be engaged in the selling of their surplus wares to people outside the manorial system. For the largest lords, this exchange might have simply been pure profit. For lords with only a few holdings, they would have needed to purchase things that they could not produce locally, which means that a trade system of some sort must have existed, and that the lords, at least, were actively involved in it. So this catches us up a bit to where we ended last episode. Between the years 500 and 700, the European economy and society collapsed. Under the weight of a whole bunch of body blows, only a few of which were self-inflicted, the Roman Empire's political superstructure just crumbled. Since much of the trading system was affordable only due to government subsidy, this trading network then collapsed as well. On a micro scale, the villa system faced challenges it was not designed to face, and was supplanted by a new economic unit of production that was possibly more productive but was definitely better suited to the new economic conditions. As we have seen, just because the manor was more resilient than the villa, that did not mean that it was an island economy, nor that it was some kind of economic stasis unit. 
This leads to something of a conundrum. On the macro scale, we've seen the long-distance trade networks collapse. While coastal trampers remain, they're focused on short- and medium-distance trades, and serve as ample evidence that economic activity had become very local indeed. On the other hand, we have surprisingly dynamic manors, whose residents and lords are clearly in the market for consumer goods and maybe the odd luxury. So how do we bring these two worlds together and reconcile macro-scale disaster with micro-scale innovation? Simple. We remember the issue of geography. As we've discussed many times in this show, Europe was not a monolith, and different things happened differently in different places. Just as the local-level administration persisted in many places long after the political collapse of the Roman Empire, and just as European feudalism took different forms in different places, the same was true of the medieval economy. So with your kind acquiescence, I would like to spend the rest of today's episode examining the political and economic geography of Europe during the critical years of 500 to 700. This will itself prove very instructive, and will set us up nicely for next episode, at which point we will bring all of this together for what I hope is a really satisfying look at the European economy as it entered the High Middle Ages. Sound good? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm going to continue anyway. Okay. In the British Isles, the withdrawal of the legions led to an almost immediate political and economic collapse, and revival only happened under the aegis of a new Germanic culture. The islands are not really key to the story, so I'm going to basically leave it at that, except to say that despite a nearly apocalyptic archaeological record, by our time period the British Isles had formed strong economic bonds with northern France and the Nordic countries, a fact that we can see in the material culture of the new Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and their newfound ability to mint gold, despite being located on a set of damp moss-covered rocks with no major gold deposits to speak of. You know, I, I wonder what it is that they were selling to get access to so much gold. Curious. Northern Francia, by contrast to the British Isles, entered our period in pretty good shape. The Frankish tribes had already been the employ of the Roman state, and slid easily into an alliance with the local Roman power structure. Under the Merovingians, the old Roman administration was mostly retained, and the local economy kept running in a familiar way well after the empire disappeared. This statement comes with the caveat that this area was never particularly urban in the first place. And so what I mean is that the Merovingian Franks and their Roman allies retained the old Roman villa system. We have even found numerous caches of slave manacles from well into the time of the Merovingian kings, which seems to imply that the Merovingian Franks continued to be customers in the slave trade for many years. Unfortunately for the Romano-Frankish nobility, the Merovingian kingdom gradually broke up due to succession disputes. During this period, the villa system disappeared and was rapidly replaced by the first examples of the bipartite manor system, as we've discussed. This set the stage for the reconsolidation of the Frankish kingdom under Charles Martel and his grandson, some Charlemagne guy, who would spread the manor system across Europe. Some of the first major fairs were established here, about which we will discuss much more in uh, two episodes, I believe, but they had an international draw for merchants, meaning that despite the chaos, northern France had trade ties with the North Sea and the Baltic at the very least. Southern France was in a very different position. This area, despite being one of the wealthiest provinces of the old empire, was the target of wave after wave of Germanic invasions. The first group to settle down was the Burgundian Kingdom, established in the central Rhone Valley in the 430s, and essentially constantly at war with its Roman, Frankish, Ostrogothic, and Visigothic neighbors until its absorption into the Frankish Kingdom in 534. Even after the Franks took over, wars with the Visigoths and the Lombards continued until the Visigoths were replaced by the Saracens, an even more scary bunch, and violence in this region would basically continue, with brief pauses at best, all the way up until the Magyars were finally driven off by good old King Otto. This violent history had a clear impact on the economic history of the region. 
The Rhone Valley was, as I had said in the walking tour episode, the preeminent trade route from south to north for the Roman Empire. This was key because it was a water route, and so the Rhone allowed for the efficient shipping of high-weight, low-value bulk goods, which essentially are the consumer goods that I've talked about a couple times in these episodes. Amongst the consumer goods was papyrus. I mentioned in passing last episode that Henri Perrin's uh, entire hypothesis was based on him showing conclusively that papyrus was no longer available in the monasteries in northern France during the early Middle Ages. Well, uh, what he failed to take into account was that it remained in use in Italy uh, until well into the Middle Ages. So, rather than his work being evidence of the disruption of trade across the entire Mediterranean, blocking the shipment of papyrus from Egypt to Europe, what it is is evidence of a blockage in the Rhone Valley specifically. Additional evidence comes from the papal archives, where records of the route choices made by papal emissaries show that up until the Burgundian kingdom took over, they would preferentially choose the Rhone, and then afterwards they would go over the Alps. Central Europe, by contrast, saw an era of unparalleled growth. Perhaps not coincidentally, as the Rhone trade route fell out of favor, new routes over the Alps and down into the Rhine were opened up at a rapid pace. This was the favored route for diplomats, imperial officials, and pilgrims, uh, as well as merchants carrying high-value, low-weight goods. Central Europe was growing even before the fall of the empire, as we've already discussed, but conquest by the Franks brought a new stability which was reinforced by monastic communities and Frankish officials. Charlemagne put three of his five imperial capitals along the Rhine, which may have served the function of trade fairs uh, when the court was in residence. After the fall of the Carolingian Empire, Central Europe was the area least troubled by Vikings and Magyars. Further east, but still in Central Europe, we have more evidence of economic growth. Numismatic evidence, that is, archaeological finds of coins, show easily traced trade routes from the top of the Adriatic near Venice up through the eastern Alps and along the Danube north into what would become Bohemia and the Baltic. This was the old Amber Road from the days of the Roman Empire, and it seems to have revived towards the end of this period. We will talk more about this next episode, but suffice it to say that these routes tend to cluster together at border checkpoints established that allowed access into the Frankish uh, kingdom and then later the empire. This shows that the Franks had trade contacts with the north, east, and south, because coins from all those areas have been found clustered together at these trade checkpoints. None of these coins were found in the empire because Charlemagne ordered all such coins to be collected and restruck into Frankish coins, but let's talk about that some other time. One of the key sources attesting to trade in Central and Eastern Europe was written by a man named Ibn Karadabeh, a Persian administrator working for the Caliphate at a trading post near the Caspian Sea. Ibn Karadabeh's works are instruction manuals on the practice of administrative geography, and he presents the reader with a fascinating, uh, detailed, and extremely matter-of-fact glimpse of the trading connections into and out of the Caliphate, but with a focus on the Caspian Sea region. This includes some tantalizing mentions of China, but that's not really why the work is uh, famous or pertinent to us today. Ibn Karadabe places a lot of emphasis on a tribe of Jewish merchants called the Radhanites, who had trade contacts from Western Europe deep into the Caliphate. Ibn Karadabe very matter-of-factly discusses the routes used by the Radhanites for trading into the Caliphate, apparently utilizing uh, basically all the trade routes discussed in this episode. Some of them came up the Amber Road and came east directly, maybe using the Danube. A lot of them used the Volga River system in Eastern Europe, uh, and some of them sailed in the Mediterranean. 
The source has become controversial in the 20th century because, well, if you're looking for evidence of an international conspiracy of wealthy Jews, it's easy to misinterpret the source for those ends. Uh, and by extension, anyone looking to discredit such notions will be tempted to discredit the source. To be sure, the existence of the Radonite tribe, as literally depicted by Ibn Karadabe, has not been well substantiated. Only a few other sources even mention them, and most of those other sources are actually reading from Ibn Karadabe. And just for the record, if there is an international conspiracy of wealthy Jews, I would really like a word with them. They never call, they never write, they never send me big fat checks. I worry is all. In any case, the Zionist conspiracy reading of the work is absurd on its face, but that doesn't mean that Ibn Karadabe's writings are not valuable, because Ibn Karadabe wasn't writing about an international Zionist conspiracy, just a bunch of merchants that he interpreted as being related somehow. On this subject, Michael McCormick makes a very strong case that the documents are, at least in some sense, reliable. Jewish merchants plying long-distance trading routes uh, have been found in records since before the fall of the Roman Empire, and the existence of Jewish merchants engaged in long-distance trade during the early Middle Ages is corroborated by many, many independent sources, from Francia to Spain, and representing all sorts of different religious and political backgrounds. The chance of collusion between all these different sources, or drawing on some similar vision of anti-Semitic stereotyped traits, is e extremely low. We also have letters from rabbis in Francia, Spain, the Levant, Central Asia, and Baghdad showing some level of contact between these widely dispersed Jewish communities. These contacts could well have made use of such networks to ensure the success of these long-distance communications. And you know, the existence of some sort of international group of Jewish traders, uh, whatever their relationship to each other, would certainly help explain the conversion of the Khazars to Judaism, especially since the area that Ibn Karadabe was writing in was right next to the Khazars. All of this is ultimately just too much to be a coincidence. It is likely that uh, there were a fair number of Jews who were engaged in a long-distance trading system. The idea that they were all sort of blood relatives or belonged to a tribe is probably not true. But there's a certain logic in the idea. Uh, there's a potentially rational explanation, though it is somewhat speculative. Um, in pre-modern societies, trading links were very personal and were deeply based on trust, especially since there were no legal mechanisms for uh, ensuring that you wouldn't get cheated. Any kind of connection between people could help the formation of bonds of trusts. Co-religionists, who are all part of a persecuted minority, no matter where they are, might well be expected to form such bonds of trust. These bonds could be reinforced over the years, especially in times of chaos. It's also possible that Jewish merchants whose families had been in business before the fall of the empire might just not have been able to transition to different careers as easily as some of their neighbors. But that's not to say that the Jewish merchants were the only ones involved in long-distance trades. While the documentary evidence in general for trading is slim, and while Jews are well represented in what we have, so are a lot of other different kinds of people. From the Rus merchants on the Volga to the Venetians in the Adriatic, there were long-distance trades happening even in this period of economic darkness. The value of Ibn Karadabe as a source is not so much his testimony about the faith of merchants during the early Middle Ages, so much as his testimony that there were merchants during the early Middle Ages, especially in a place as poorly documented as the Caspian Basin. Speaking of the Rus and the Caspian Basin, you will recall from the walking tour episodes that these were the terminuses of a huge arc of trade connections that went from the British Isles to the Caliphate. This arc of lands was centered on the Nordic countries, 
whose adventurous peoples personally engaged in much of the trading themselves. We covered this network in some detail during the walking tour, and I don't have too much to add to that, so if you want to learn more, go back to those early episodes. I will also just add that the Age of Vikings podcast is very good and is about to do a whole bunch of episodes on this subject, so check that show out, actually. For now, we don't know much about what was happening in in the Nordic countries politically. Archaeology has shown that these societies were probably gradually centralizing. They had been disrupted, along with much of Europe, by a series of climatic catastrophes during this period, and that all of this seems to have fed into constantly accelerating trade ties to the west and to the east. Iberia was, as you know, conquered by the Arabs, who retained the Roman administrative system. It will not surprise you to learn that they retained much of the surviving economic system as well, including the villas, although they were able to make use of a burst of agricultural innovations emerging from the caliphate to sidestep some of the economic calcification that the villas were experiencing in other places during this period. This area was tied into trade routes along North Africa's coast. Uh, Some may have been sea-based, some may have been on land. Archaeologists need to do a lot more work there. But it seems that it was an active trade corridor nonetheless, and certainly the Arab economies were far more valuable than those in Northern and Western Europe in the early Middle Ages. Frankish conquests around Barcelona may have served as a gateway for some of this economic activity to seep into northern Europe, but then this was also an active military frontier, so the scale of these contacts isn't clear. The most active of the so-called Saracen pirates that would we'll be talking about a lot next episode may have sailed out of Iberia and the Balearic Islands. This brings us to Italy. Italy was, of course, as we have discussed many times, just absolutely destroyed by the Italian wars of Justinian. Eastern Roman holdings were reduced by pressure from the Lombards to parts of southern Italy, Sicily, the corridor between Ravenna and Rome, and the islands. Communications with Constantinople by sea kept these areas on life support economically, something which proved very important for Rome in particular. Papal land holdings in Sicily took the place of the old Roman grain shipments for many years, and helped keep the city of Rome from collapsing entirely. By the time the Eastern Roman Empire was squeezed out of northern Italy as well, Rome, the city, was left as the largest remaining city on the peninsula simply by virtue of not having collapsed quite so badly as everyone else, and thus became a destination for merchants. Italy shows evidence of the way that the medieval manners contained strong self-organizing features that differ from, but also reinforce, what we discussed earlier in the context of northern France and central Europe. For many years, it was thought that the manners of Italy came about as part of the Incasalmento, which we have discussed in this show in several earlier episodes. As indicated in those episodes, however, modern archaeological work has disproved this old narrative. Villages in Italy seem to have been able to make collective decisions, such as deciding to up stakes and move to safer locations, indicating that they had some kind of corporate identity. And there is very little evidence of dispersed, settled populations. It seems that in Italy, everyone just chose to live in villages from the beginning. These developments long predate in Castlemento, and may not even be reflective of a need for collective security. While the villages do generally move to more inaccessible locations when they do so, this could easily reflect the changing disease environment of Italy, or new economic pressures in an era of environmental degradation, rather than a fear of invading barbarians. The fact that it isn't until the Saracen and Magyar incursions that these villages started to fortify themselves might reinforce this picture. In any case, it was still many years after the fortification work began that the Frankish and Lombard nobility of northern Italy began to impose themselves by force onto these village communities. 
Whatever the specific process was for the development of the Italian version of the manorial system, and despite the total devastation that afflicted Italy's urban communities, it's clear that some trading continued even in Italy's worst period, probably just because they had to. Pilgrims and diplomats traveled through the area, and they did not build roads and ships specifically for that purpose, of course. There's also some documentary evidence of small-time merchants and farmers buying boats collectively for shipping produce. And while direct evidence of what was being shipped is scant, most evidence in the written records is of things like salt and food that are basic for survival, and which conform to the idea of a very local system of interlocking local economic spheres. So where does this leave us with the early medieval microeconomy? As we discussed, the manors were not economically self-sufficient. Individual noble families might be vertically integrated, but they did this by moving goods around between various manors, and the ultimate goal was still the sale of surplus into the market. But what market were they selling to? The collapse of the systems of Roman subsidy undermined the economics of long-distance trade for low-value, high-weight consumer goods, which make up the majority of most economic systems. As we just saw, political boundaries and warfare, such as the dead zone that developed in the Rhone Valley, almost definitely disrupted the trade in some areas uh, even beyond the collapse of the Roman system. But we also saw that trade proved amazingly malleable. As the Rhone route closed, new passes opened up in the Alps, and the Amber Road revived. There was even an entirely new route in the Northern Arc from the British Isles to the Caspian Sea. So to bring all this together today, I think there is one last piece of evidence to discuss before I close, and that is pottery. Now, most of you are extremely well-educated and physically attractive, so I probably don't need to go into depth on the importance of pottery in the study of the ancient world, but the study of this subject in the context of the Middle Ages is pretty new for some reason. I actually left this topic out of the methodology episode, so let's take a paragraph for a quick aside. Pottery is interesting to archaeologists because it doesn't decay, and it is extremely useful for a variety of consumer purposes. Pottery can be used for shipping bulk goods, it can be used for decorative purposes, it can be used for cooking, storage, anything that requires a container, and more. Different regions throughout history have developed different techniques for pottery production over time, based on the uses intended for the pots, the technical prowess of the producers, and the cultural preferences of all involved. In studying the ancient world, archaeologists and historians have long used detailed studies of pottery's evolution over time to track social and cultural changes through time. Establishing firm timelines and geographies for these changes lets archaeologists date finds in the field based on pottery found on site, and lets historians study economic linkages and social changes. The study of medieval pottery has only started in the last few decades, but has already yielded interesting results. The first thing we see in the record is that the more refined professional pottery produced in the Mediterranean basin disappeared from most of northern Europe pretty quickly as the empire collapsed. In its place, crude local pottery styles developed. On the one hand, this could be evidence of a lack of buying power amongst consumers now facing unsubsidized shipping routes. However, it should also be noted that these pottery styles seem to track very closely to the political boundaries of the post-Roman Germanic kingdoms. For example, when a Frankish king conquered the Alemannians, the pottery style local to that king's home region rapidly spread into the new area when they had previously been almost entirely separated. When we combine this evidence with the rest of what we discussed today, I think it brings the economic picture into something that approaches focus. Manners in a given region were not islands. They were, by necessity, economically interconnected in exchanging the materials and finished products required to maintain even a basic level of subsistence. At the same time, it's clear that an active military frontier can stop this kind of bulk trade. 
At the same time, the nobility, with their networks of communication between their different manors, were restricted within a kingdom. And so, whether it was by force or by these political connections, it's clear that military frontiers and political frontiers could stop this kind of bulk trade. But then, Europe's geography is a funny thing. Especially in an area when governing institutions rose and fell and often left power vacuums in certain areas, Europe's geography prevented long lines of hostile frontier. Unlike in Asia Minor, where the Taurus Mountains served as such an effective barrier that even uh, an outbreak of the bubonic plague proved unable to cross it, borders in Europe were porous and fractured. The Burgundians restricted trade on the Rhone, but not over the Alps, and so trade moved over the Alps. There were always new passes and new paths, and even if that meant taking trade all the way around Europe entirely and crossing the flatlands of Russia by boat, so be it. The fall of the Merovingian dynasty was thus probably the darkest period in Europe's economy, with Italy a smoldering ruin, the Hungarian plain dominated by the Avars, didn't mention that, but that's true, and Spain in the process of being conquered, the Frankish heartland of Western Europe broke up into a handful of mutually hostile kingdoms that served to break down the economy into its smallest level that would be attained during the Middle Ages. But even then, trade moved. And in the next episode, we will bring all of this to its dramatic and possibly somewhat troubling conclusion as we examine how Europe's economy began to revive in the 800s. It's a fascinating story, and you won't want to miss it. So be sure to tune in to the next exciting installment of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.